0: The history of science and medicine you were taught in school doesn't tell the whole story. Our legacy is full of unsung heroes who made incredible contributions that just haven't been recognized, and there are too many suppressed stories of exploitation under the guise of scientific research. As biomedical scientists and seekers of justice, we want to uncover the hidden side of science and make these stories known. People of all races, genders, nationalities, sexualities, and abilities have always been essential to pushing the field forward. It's time for us all to Reclaim the Bench.
1: Welcome to Reclaim the Bench. I'm Jamal.
0: I'm Megan.
1: In this episode, episode three, we recorded in Megan's attic because our university's recording studios still have limited access due to COVID and um, we can't afford our own recording studio at the moment.
0: Yeah. So the audio, is a little bad. <laughs> You're probably going to hear some clanking because my husband was making guacamole in the kitchen downstairs. And I think at one point he comes in to get a drink out of the fridge and there's a couple airplanes flying over my house, <laughs> but we did try really hard to improve the quality and it shouldn't affect your listening too much.
1: Yeah. And he wears house shoes with bells at the end of them. What i just
0: <laughs> Can you imagine? I keep him on a tight leash. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but anyway, we have an amazing engineer, Jay, and he did his best to improve the quality and he's begging us to get a better quality recording environment. So we really could use your guys' support or you can donate on our website at reclaimthebench.com. Um but also if you have equipment that might be useful to us, you can just contact us on our website or social media at Reclaim the Bench.
0: Another thing is we have a lot of really exciting stuff coming up the pipeline that we're going to be rolling out soon on our Patreon, which is a subscription website where you're going to get extended content. And we have a ton of interviews coming up. We just completed one, like, 20 minutes ago, that was amazing, by a couple of scientists who are on the front line of COVID-19 testing efforts. So there's going to be a lot of cool stuff for you to check out there. So that's another option to support us. So check our social media for more on that coming soon. So with that, let's get into it. Hey, everyone. We've had some technical difficulties. We thought that Jamal didn't exist earlier because I was trying to play back our test audio. And it literally wasn't picking up his voice at all, so it was really freaky. We weren't sure which of us was the crazy one. But it turns out that I just had my laptop um, microphone on instead of the good microphone. But now I'm here
1: in the flesh. Oh,
0: yeah. (laughs) With his coffee.
1: Yeah, I'll try not to drink that too much with all that ice. Oh, it's
0: not even Starbucks. I'm so surprised.
1: It, it'll do for now. So. It's not your
0: extra nitro Starbucks, but... Yeah,
1: you got to ask for the extra nitro, <laughs> even if they have to remake the whole system.
0: <laughs> it's the bougiest thing about you. <laughs> Starbucks
1: gives you that good quality service, you know what I mean? Like Like, they make you feel like you're a king when you go there. Yeah. And tim hortons is like
0: they like chuck the coffee at yeah. you across the room take it cousin
1: yeah exactly like they don't even say like can i help you they just mm-hmm. look at you like
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah i'll take a medium coffee almond we don't have no almond milk say <laughs> no starbucks it's tim hortons i really had a guy at tim hortons tell me he's like yeah we're we're trifling i know really he told me yeah we go there. We're in the car in the yeah. drive-thru. We're like, can we get this? Can we get this? Well, we don't have it. We don't have it. We don't have this. Okay. All we got is soup and <coughs> drinks. Okay. We'll take broccoli cheddar soup. Get to the window. We don't have the broccoli cheddar <laughs> soup. So we just had two drinks. He's like, I'm sorry. I know we trifling. I'm just going to give you all the drinks for free. That's <laughs> the quality. he knows. <laughs> yeah, he, he knows. He knows.
0: So how's your weekend been
1: going? Uh, it's fine. Just working on some revisions for a paper and working on my own manuscript. That's about it. What about you?
0: We went to get some apple cider yesterday from a cider farm. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you call it. The cider farm. Cider. Yeah.
1: yeah. So never been to a farm.
0: <laughs> it's so good. And the cider just tastes so much more fresh because they don't put any preservatives or anything. It's just straight apple.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. I would like to buy that somewhere. You didn't have to like yeah. press it yourself, did you? No. <laughs> you just went there and picked it up? Yeah. I can do that.
0: After waiting in line for an hour though.
1: Okay, I can't do that. <laughs> and I don't want to get my shoes dirty.
0: <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. It's just it's just a store like at the front of their farm.
1: Oh, okay. All right. So So last episode we talked a lot about Rebecca Lee Crumpler yes. being the first black woman to earn an M D in the United mm-hmm. States. And a lot of those components that were sort of developed around that time, like you talked about, like the Freedmen's Act, we talked about the establishment at Howard University mm-hmm. and many of those factors actually directly leads into the story about what we'll be talking about today. Yeah. Um, and this guy who I never knew exactly who he was when I was a kid, but we had a school named after him. And this guy is Dr. Charles Drew. It turns out he actually has a lot of schools named after him across Hmm. the country. Yeah, mainly public schools, but there's also a medical university uh, named after him. So, yeah, Uh, he was a very important guy. And what he did directly relates to treatments today around diseases such as COVID. Really? Yeah. So um, if anybody's ever heard of someone gaining... Um, antibodies against a particular pathogen. Right now they're doing like IgG or IgM um, testing. And basically people who have this antibody or this lifetime antibody can actually use their, what, serum Mm -hmm. to um, sort of transfuse to other individuals and hopefully give them that protection. And that was actually... Um, For the most part, invented by Charles Drew.
0: No way. Uh,
1: For completely different reasons, though. Mainly to treat um, shock, which we'll kind of get into. Um, I just
0: heard these two women in line to get apple cider yesterday talking about antibodies and using serum for protection. So, yeah, definitely very timely.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's difficult to say that this is the best or most reliable or viable solution now, because everything is ad hoc, we're still analyzing stuff in the process of this pandemic. But traditionally, using um, other people's antibodies is a viable source of treatment to establish protection. So
0: yeah, get us into it. What are we? What are we really talking about? Who is this guy?
1: So again, Dr. Charles Drew, who was actually a physician scientist. Oh. Like yourself. Oh, yeah.
0: Um, one of the good ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he
1: he was one of the good physician yeah, scientists. Yeah. Not that all physician scientists are good.
0: Yeah, no, that was what I was trying to say. Oh, okay.
1: But Megan's all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. Yeah. So his, his medical training was actually in surgery, and his scientific training was in blood and fluid chemistry. And his big claim to fame, as I was discussing earlier, uh, was mainly around blood and blood plasma, And he discovered a method for long-term storage of blood plasma and organized America's first large-scale blood bank. Wow. But as we'll see when we get into it, although his work was very important, is very important now and was very important of his time, he always seemed to be reduced to being a Black man in America. And so sadly, the way he had to navigate throughout his life Mm-hmm. wasn't purely on his scientific trajectory but just being able to find somewhere to practice his science. Yeah. But he was a very successful uh, physician until until he died.
0: So he worked with he worked against the system or rather regardless of the system and was still able to be successful.
1: Yeah, again, um, the theme for Rebecca Lee Crumpler mm-hmm. was that she was resilient, right? Yes. This guy was also resilient. He did not allow um, the system to prevent him from doing what he really wanted to do. So a little bit of background about this guy. Dr. Charles Drew was born in 1904 in Washington, D.C. This is a very important place because, as we'll see throughout this episode, he came back here throughout his career to work at Howard University, which was established during the Freedmen's Act that we talked about in the last episode. uh, In the last episode, we
0: mentioned... Historically, black colleges and universities or HBCUs and how those came about, like Jamal said, during the Freedmen's Bureau establishment in Reconstruction.
1: Yeah, and which is uh, super important to this theme. We would not have a Charles Drew without HBCUs, although, ironically, his education wasn't from an HBCU, but his career Ooh. development. Was Um, so yeah. Drew grew up in a middle class family. Uh, His father was a carpenter, and his mother went to school to become a teacher, Hmm. but ended up just being a stay at home mom. Mm -hmm. Well, I shouldn't say just being. I mean that in itself is a hard job. It is, (laughs) especially because they had uh, he had five other siblings.
0: Oh wow, Uh, six
1: kids. Yeah, six kids. Yeah, one of them which died from tuberculosis, Uh and in some way was an inspiration for him to go into medicine. But yeah, he had a pretty uh big family. For whatever reason, his mother um decided not to teach and to raise Drew and his siblings. So, as a kid, Drew was kind of a entrepreneur. He's a very savvy kid. He did this uh he had a paper route and established his paper delivery service and then decided to become an entrepreneur at a young age uh, where he was able to get 10 of his friends to work for him nice and these kids were delivering up to 2,000 papers a day
0: oh my god
1: yeah so he was pretty witty they I were think. hustling yeah they really were yeah oh. I wonder mm-hmm. what their mode of transportation was
0: Really bikes,
1: bikes. Yeah, was, okay. um, yeah yeah,
0: horse and carriage yeah
1: <laughs> just riding horses yeah. dropping off the newspaper <laughs> That's how I want my paper delivered.
0: Seriously? <laughs> Can you imagine horses just coming through the streets of Buffalo, people just flinging papers left and right?
1: So anyway, um during his early education, he wasn't known as like a star student for the most part, okay. but he was known as a very um successful athlete. Wow. Yeah. So he excelled at many different sports. He was like a, um, you ever heard of Bo, of Bo Jackson? Yeah. Yeah, he was like an original Bo Jackson. So Bo Jackson was this um, natural like phenom of an athlete who in college and in professional sports Mm -hmm. played football and baseball and he never really trained.
0: Wow. Yeah, he didn't
1: really go to practice or anything like that. Well, he didn't have like these extreme like workout regimens and Mm -hmm. he didn't lift weights, if I'm not mistaken. But he was just like a freak athlete. And so he. A freak
0: athlete. (laughs) (laughs) It's a term in sports. Okay, I'm not as big into sports as you are.
1: Yeah, but he actually him being a freak athlete was his ultimate demise um, and how he got injured. But yeah, he would Mm -hmm. just like go from sport to sport, like just hop on a plane and just like go kill it. And, like, be, like, the best at both sports. And he did that in professional world, too. Like, he did it in college, but then he played in the NFL and MLB. So, like, yeah, he wouldn't even be at, like, training camp in the offseason because he'd be playing a different professional sport, completely different. Yeah, and Charles Drew was kind of um, an earlier version of that, although he didn't play professional sports. Mm -hmm. um, In high school, he played um, a lot of sports. Um, I think it's reported he played – at least four different sports Mm -hmm. and was considered the best at all of those sports. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This was at Paul Lawrence Dunbar high school. So after high school, he leveraged his athleticism uh, to earn a scholarship in track and football at Amherst College in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. This was in uh, 1922. While there at Amherst College, he, of course, continued to excel at sports. He won a number of athletic awards, including MVP in football. Yet, even though he was considered, you know, the best amongst these sports, he was never given a position of captain. Captain is, you've played sports before, right? So captain is like, that's the team leader. Yep. So Mm -hmm. he was a great athlete, but they didn't want him leading his majority white counterparts at the time.
0: You know, this actually reminds me of Jamal and I were just talking about football the other day in the NFL and how it still has very racial undertones or overtones, I guess. It's not that well hidden. Yeah. Um, That like 70 percent of the players are black. But, yeah, most of the quarterbacks are white, most of the
1: coaches, team,
0: coaches the owners. You and then
1: the- then the owners are mm-hmm. majority white. It's not much diversity at all. No. Um, as you go higher and higher from, you know, GMs, from coaches to GMs to yes. presidents to owners. But there's majority of players are African-American. Right. right. So I'm
0: curious about the captains. I'm trying to look it up right now, but it doesn't look like there's any stats about captains by race.
1: But the leader is usually the quarterback. Right. Right. In football. And so, yeah, this is uh, just another example of this sort of exploitative behavior in sports,
0: which still continues today, despite the fact that it's literally 100 years later
1: yeah from um,
0: the 1920s
1: to the 2020s. So anyway, even though Drew was a became a physician scientist, he was mainly concerned with athletics in school, his early education and his undergrad education. But upon graduating in 1926, he had inspiration from a biology uh, professor and decided to um, attend medical school. So, yeah, this is very similar to my experience, actually. So the only black professor that's a scientist, maybe even only black professor, period, definitely that's a scientist that I've met in the three institutions that I've been in, from college to master's to a PhD, was in my undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I met him my very last semester. He was my professor for, I think it was advanced physiology, or something like that. Okay. Uh, his name was Dr. Dubois, and he's from Haiti, and super cool, slick dude. Oh. Yeah. He, he had like has such
0: a calming accent. Yeah, he
1: had like a small little mini fro, oh. and little accent, and he wore these shoes, and he said, okay, okay, <laughs> many <laughs> times I the lecture, to make sure you were woke, and yeah. uh, he was very, very tough, but very smart. But anyway, um... I was double majoring in math and in biology, but my interest was more so in math at the time. It just came more natural to me, I guess. But he inspired me to want to pursue uh, the biological sciences um, and that aspect of my degree upon graduating. And that's why I applied to graduate programs to do research because I was considering either going to pharmacy school like I had decided from the beginning or going to graduate school for math. Mm -hmm. So he was a huge inspiration. So this is uh, pretty interesting that Drew also had that kind of uh, inspiration right at the tail end of his um, undergrad career.
0: That's super cool. I hope professors realize how much influence they can have on their students' future career choices, like either for better or for worse. If you encourage your students to pursue a, a career that they might not have considered, that you could see them doing well in. It's crazy how life-changing that can be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's paying it forward. is something mm-hmm. that people have done for us that yeah. we have to do. It's just a part of the system. Oh, yeah. You know? But it's also up to us to sort of give people their roses while they're here, right? To let people know the impact that they've had on our lives so yes. that they know that their work was fruitful.
0: Right. I was so this kind of different, but Jamal and I both really like to mentor people who are coming up through the sciences, whether they're undergrads or more junior grad students. And recently, one of the undergrads that I'm mentoring told me how much... She is able to read papers quickly in her classes now and understand them because we've had these journal clubs that I've Mm. set up for them that we like very slowly go through the papers and I try to give them tips on how to read and understand them. And she was telling me how much that paid off. And I was just so happy to hear that. Like, even as grad students, we can have this impact on people. So for my fellow grad students out there, remember that and if you're an undergrad then for high schoolers and so on.
1: Yeah, I've had very uh similar experiences also mm-hmm. and yeah, it makes you think like, you know, we do have the ability to begin making those changes now even though if anybody were to advise us on what we do and how we spend our time as graduate students they say oh just wait until you're established Mm -hmm. and then you can make a change which is even more reason why we have to be like high level scientists right like we really have to go hard yeah so people can know that that we're respected as high level graduate students whatever that means Mm -hmm. and still try to make this change so we have like that type of uh leverage yeah right and I think it worked out in our favor right nobody's looking at us and saying like, you know, they should be doing this better. Mm-hmm. Maybe our PI, <laughs> uh, but that's just that's just a part of the, the process. But, you know, from the outside looking in, I don't think people are saying like, oh, these are some mediocre people mm-hmm. who aren't very good at science and are trying to do a bunch of outreach stuff. Like, yeah. I think we're pretty, we do pretty well in both. It shouldn't have to I be that so. way.
0: I know. I know. You know.
1: Everybody should have a voice. Right. But right. I think maybe with our imposter syndromes that yes. we have, uh, we must be able to show that we can exist at a high level in order to do extracurricular.
0: Right. Like be the best at your science and then also do other things on Mm -hmm. top of that.
1: Yeah. So when considering applying to medical school, Drew faced two very important problems. One, he needed money. Two, Mm -hmm. uh, segregation prevented um, certain educational opportunities. Hmm. So he couldn't directly go to medical school right after undergraduate he had to take a job at morgan state university which is an hbcu in baltimore so not too far from where he's from yeah Mm -hmm. uh there he taught chemistry and biology and also served as the athletic director and the football coach Hmm. so still carrying these two parallels of sports and his you know newfound passion for science and medicine but um yeah, I mean, it kind of sucks, right? He had to delay for a couple years yeah. in order to save up money, but, you know, people still have to do that now. Oh, yeah, so I was going to
0: say, that's still a very common problem. Yeah,
1: it's medical school, it's expensive, right?
0: Yeah, the, I was just ranting about this yesterday. So, the ratio of debt, how much they owe to the income, how much they're making is increasing because people have to incur more debt every year. And the income for physicians is decreasing relative to inflation every year. So Mm. the investment of going into medical school actually becomes less and less of a good idea every year because it's so expensive to attend. And then coming out of it, our doctors are not paid as much anymore. Mm. Um, So it's actually quite a crisis in this country that Eventually, if the debt becomes too high and the relative in- income becomes too low, no one's going to want to go to medical school because it yeah. doesn't make financial sense.
1: Yeah. So we should just lower the debt or eliminate it, not necessarily increase the pay, though.
0: That's Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely my opinion is yeah. lowering the debt because then you have more of the people who really want to go into this field. It's not an easy field. Like if you just want to make money people always say just go into business like you don't need to mm-hmm. go into so much education. maybe
1: finance right yeah 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 i feel like if sims was presented with this these <laughs> options he'd be like mm, the debt to income ratio uh-huh. is too high i'm trying to ball out of control i don't want
0: to spend a
1: lot of money to serve yeah. people
0: right right mm-hmm. yeah
1: but it was much it was much different at the time right
0: Yeah. so but yeah now if we decrease the tuition and fees, I think it would be more of the people who truly just want to serve people and work as healers versus trying to get the glory or the money.
1: Yeah, the glory. But yeah, so this problem even, you know, existed at this time. And um, I can't imagine how much medical school was at the time. But this guy, you know, must have been eating ramen every day and (laughs) saving up all his pennies (laughs) in order to make that dream happen. Right. Mm -hmm. So once he was ready to apply, he was able to maybe check off one of those problems, right? The money. Yeah. But the second problem, which was segregation and discrimination, was still prevalent. So um, that wasn't as easy of a fix. Yeah. And so he had two options for medical school, Howard University, the HBCU that we've mm-hmm. been talking about, or Harvard University. So ironically, he wasn't accepted into Howard Because of some technicality with some of his humanity electives or something like that. Yeah. So he wasn't accepted to Howard, but he was accepted to Harvard. Wow. However, um, they gave him a deferment. And so he's Um, like, this is some bull. Yeah. He's like, I already spent two years waiting uh, for what I really want Mm -hmm. to do, saving up money to get here. I don't want to wait another year. I mean, what what happens to a, a dream deferred? Right. Mm,
0: so uh-huh.
1: uh who's, who wrote that?
0: Langston Hughes.
1: Yep. Okay. Yep. So not wanting to prolong this process, Drew then decided to pack up and move to Canada. And so mm. he went to McGill University, which is in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, to uh, earn his medical degree. That's
0: pretty awesome. It's a good university. It,
1: it's it's a really good university. Yeah. yeah. Still now, it's a very mm-hmm. really good university, and it kind of worked out in his favor because uh, it's super weird to think about, but he he was still able to play sports in medical school. Cool. <laughs>
0: That's, I don't know how he had the time. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, he did a lot actually during yeah. medical school. So, yeah, he he played um, sports. He um, excelled in athletics. Again, uh, he was a standout athlete. But this time he also was a standout student. Mm-hmm. Um, he was accepted into the Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honor Society, which mm-hmm. is strictly based on academic achievement. And he also won a scholarship prize in neuroanatomy and Won the J. Francis William Prize in Medicine after being the top five students in the exam competition.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. So he really, like, he wanted this. Yeah. You know, he, he saved up his money. He left the country, his yeah. comfort zone. Mm-hmm. He went to uh, McGill University, and mm-hmm. it really showed like when you really want something, right. things start to come together.
0: I think that's something we're not able to do so much in our education system, maybe, is like focus on what each individual kid is really passionate about yes. and what they're good at, and that's why you get so many of these kids and even college students who are just like, "Oh, not too interested and they don't focus on the academics
1: in his situation um, he must have been thinking things that i've also thought about my path is that maybe my setbacks are setups for success, you know mm-hmm. maybe the things that held him back made him more hungry and helped yeah. him realized exactly what he wanted to do and as right. we'll see in the rest of the story i mean he was doing so many different things mm-hmm. i mean i spent a lot of time looking at the chronology of this research because i'm like no he couldn't have done this at the same <laughs> time that he done that he did this it doesn't even make sense right <laughs> but he did right and i think we're kind of coming into that soon actually
0: awesome i'm so excited to hear about it
1: yeah so he uh finished in nineteen thirty three he got his m d and a master's in surgery and was second in his class mm-hmm. very very highly um accomplished mm-hmm. so after graduating, he completed his residency in pathology and internal medicine at the Royal victoria and montreal general hospitals uh respectively and at this time that he was doing this residency. His spark for transfusion medicine was born, and he worked under a visiting scholar in bacteriology named John Beto. I think he was from the UK, Mm -hmm. and just so happened to be in Canada at the same time that Drew was there. Okay, And so they worked together on um, treating shock with fluid replacement. I don't know if you have any insight into that.
0: Yeah, there's different kinds of shock, so it's not just someone being shocked, like surprised or amazed. So shock is basically not enough blood getting to your entire body. So it can come from hemorrhage, like an extreme loss of blood, fluid loss like dehydration, some sort of disorder of the heart leading to heart failure. You've probably heard of anaphylactic shock when someone has a really severe allergic reaction. Yep. That causes extreme dilation of the blood vessels, which leads to loss of like basically the fluid is going into your surrounding tissues that's why people get all puffy instead of going through the vasculature of the body sepsis is when you have an overload of bacteria or other pathogens in the body that basically overwhelms your system to fight infection so all these things can cause shock which leads to failure of organs throughout the body it's Similar to what we talked about two episodes ago, ischemia, when there's not enough blood flow, but that's to an isolated area. Shock is like throughout the body, you're not getting enough blood flow. So basically all of your organs can shut down. So really it's this thing that you need fluid and you need to keep the fluid in the vasculature quickly. So it makes sense that they're using fluid replacement to treat their shock.
1: Yeah, and this must have been... uh... Pretty novel. I mean, based on what you were saying, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that this was something that they were able to see results immediately, right? Probably within days of doing like blood transfusions or giving electrolytes. If it's going to
0: work, it it needs to work very quickly within hours. Oh, okay. Because there's like this point of no return. Like, if you lose enough fluid, it's basically a threshold where before that point, if you give someone fluids in time, they can recover. But once there's a certain fl- threshold, even if you give as much fluid as you possibly can, they can still die. Yeah, uh, you can see the results within hours. Okay. Quickly.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, so this must have been a pretty rewarding feeling, especially if yeah. these guys were sort of stumbling upon this or researching mm-hmm. it and seeing what can be done. Yeah. So which is primarily why Drew wanted to continue to study this throughout his mm-hmm. career. So I think a major place for him to continue this work was to come back to the US. Okay. And to work in transfusion therapy at the Mayo Clinic. Hmm. Um, however, you know, he got his degree in Canada and he, you know, Maybe he thought when he came back that it would be more opportunities, yeah. but it still wasn't. It was very segregated, really? and yeah, blacks. The Mayo
0: clinic is in Minnesota. Like it's not in the south.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, the north. We don't have our hands clean. No, we don't up up here. Um, For sure. Yeah, de- definitely.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so he had very limited opportunity. Blacks were still barred from working in medicine at many different places, and mm-hmm. so actually he ended up taking a job at Howard. University, wow. right? So this was his first sort of experience um, with Howard because, again, he didn't get accepted for medical school, yeah. but he went back home and worked at Howard. Uh, while there, he taught pathology and surgery before eventually in 1936, so a few years later, after having his medical degree, he became chief surgical resident at Freedman's Hospital.
0: Oh, wow, yeah. this really does tie back in. It
1: ties back in. <laughs> Actually, correction, so it was a few years after his medical degree, but one year after completing residency. So within one year okay. of him working at Friedman's Hospital, he became tre- chief surgical resident. Wow. Um, I get, He must have done like one year in pathology and one year okay. in internal medicine and then decided to come to the States and work in transfusion therapy, didn't work out, and then worked at Howard. But then also was a resident at Howard. Okay. So, this is where we're getting into those things where I really had to dive deep
0: yeah. in
1: the literature to make sure that several sources were reporting the same things. Okay. These are pretty reputable sources. Yeah. And it turns out that, yeah, he was just kind of everywhere he went from here on out, he was like double dipping. He was, you know, he was establishing his professional career yeah. and still training. Wow. So, yeah, he was a chief surgical resident and a mm-hmm. professor. Um, at this time. And in 1938, he began his doctorate at Columbia University. Hmm. So, I mean, he's already a pretty well-established guy, right? A couple of different yeah. residencies, chief surgical resident and professor at Howard, but he decided to continue his education. So, wow, this
0: guy's just hungry for knowledge. Yeah, he, he, I love it.
1: He is. Yeah. And he's not letting anything get in his way. Yeah. In, in Columbia, my Ivy League school, super prestigious university is, is a pretty nice feather in his cap as it is, mm-hmm. but then he earned a fellowship from Rockefeller University, which is also in Manhattan, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, RPI trained there.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so during his time, he worked under this surgeon named Alan Whipple.
0: Oh, I think I've heard of him. Really? Yeah, there's like the Whipple procedure. It's this like, it's known to be one of the most difficult surgical procedures.
1: Really? I think
0: it's like removing... Part of the pancreas.
1: Yeah. Let, let's look that up live.
0: Yeah. I remember them talking about it on Grey's Anatomy too, because they all wanted to perform the
1: I was gonna ask Whipple. you was it on Grey's Anatomy, yeah. but I didn't want to seem like <laughs> such a novice.
0: Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Let me say this word. The Whipple procedure, in parentheses, Pancreatico duodenectomy is an operation to remove the head of the pancreas, the first part of the small intestine. The gallbladder and the bile duct, and I think it takes like twelve hours.
1: Oh my god! It's
0: like one of the most difficult procedures because that area of the gut, there's just like so many structures kind of packed together in a very small area, and you mm. have to be really careful because, well, usually it's because people have cancer in that area, so oh. you don't want to spread the cancer, so you have to be really careful about not disturbing the tumor but also keeping as much of the organs intact as you can and then
1: reconnecting them. Wow, that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for looking it up live. If we can't edit out that noise that sounded like a stampede, uh, <laughs> Megan types at like 250 words per minute or something ridiculous, and that was just her typing when I uh, said uh, <laughs> uh, we should look it up. <laughs> so I guess this guy, Alan Whipple, is pretty famous, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, um, however, uh, in an effort to block exposure of hands-on training with patients, because Drew was an African-American, right? He was assigned to work under another physician named John Scudder to assist him in developing a blood bank.
0: Are you kidding? Like this guy is training in surgery and he's like, No, you can't have hands-on exposure to patients.
1: Yeah, I and mean, remember he got his master's in surgery, whatever that means, like simultaneously when he got his medical degree. Like that was going to be his specialty. Oh and God. they assigned him to do um what they thought maybe they thought it was like menial work or something, but yeah. they're kinda like, Yeah, we don't really want you being involved with patients because they probably don't you know, want African-Americans touching them or operating on them. I think Vivian Thomas, right? Yep. Yeah, they just kind of was like, yeah, this is a surgical residency, but go work under this guy, John Scudder, and just, you know, be his, like, lab tech, right?
0: Oh my and so
1: God. that had to have been very disparaging. Yeah. but
0: This guy grew where he pl- was planted, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he actually became famous for oh establishing God. the first uh widespread blood bank. So... You know, joke's on them, right?
0: Yeah, Charles Drew. Oh, my gosh. He can just do everything. (laughs) Yeah. Sports.
1: He's probably still playing, like, flag football with his (laughs) his buddy. So this guy, Scudder, was like, Drew is naturally great and a brilliant pupil. Mm -hmm. And eventually, Alan Whipple was won over by these high praises and Drew's talent and decided then to support his uh, surgical training and um, his doctoral research at the wow. same time. And so I know there's terms that rub people the wrong way, right? That that people get offended, so offended by these terms that they can't really receive the message that's being said. But this is a clear indication of white supremacy, mm-hmm. right? So yes. the white race in the U.S. is more superior than every other race. And they can train and uh, just go through life very smoothly, don't have to worry about what institution they train in, mm-hmm. wherever they want to go, they can go. Don't have to worry if people don't want them to to touch them mm-hmm. or um, to train in hands-on training in medicine. Don't have to worry about getting a job at the Mayo Clinic, yeah. right? This is a very clear indication of what white supremacy actually means. Yeah. Th- this is a clear-cut example for those who think that it doesn't exist. And yeah. while now it's a little bit more overt, there are still what we now consider like yeah. um intrinsic bias and systematic racism yeah. and institutional racism i guess it was more covert at this time right it was like yeah we don't want you right yeah. so it wasn't so
0: it was more over at that time no, yeah yeah that's what i meant yeah, yeah. yeah that's
1: yeah. what i'm sorry but anyway so this guy of course he he he's trying to learn this very sophisticated material and also trying to navigate racist america at this time
0: yeah and it's like the great depression yeah, and like World War Two is starting. What a difficult time!
1: Yeah, and it's Drew's work that would contribute to uh, World War Two with treating shock with uh, blood transfusion. Mm-hmm. And there's something very interesting that also came up in the research that I'll talk. To, I'll talk a little bit later about. It's related to World War Two and American Red Cross. So. Don't let me forget oh, yeah. when we kind of get there. Um, I
0: have some stuff to say about the Red Cross, too.
1: Okay, okay, yeah. I, I <laughs> This was my first time really looking into the Red Cross, Mm -hmm. like I have like a Red Cross, like CPR certification. I know that they're big and like, you know, donating blood and stuff. But I thought something was very weird and nobody had reported on what I'm going to tell you later. Specifically, it sort of was my own conclusion. So I had to do deeper research to Mm -hmm. see if what I'm thinking is actually true. But we'll talk about that in in a little bit. So while he was doing both surgical residency and will continue his surgical residency, Um, or surgical training, and um, pursue his doctoral research. So, as a part of um, this doctoral research, Drew focused on treating shock, again, with uh, fluid balance and blood transfusions, but also on innovating methods for long-term storage of blood, which hadn't really been developed at the time.
0: Okay, yeah. So, it seems like at that time, they knew that transfusion of blood was an option and it was a viable way to treat shock. But as soon as you remove blood from someone's body, you have um, components of the blood that cause it to coagulate and stick together. No one had figured out how to separate the different components of blood. So they could only use the entire blood, which contains the um, red blood cells, the white blood cells, the platelets, which are the little components that help heal wounds all of that all together and even that could only be stored for one week so mm. of course if you can only have it for one week that it's very dependent on when someone donated the blood and yeah. so they the didn't hospitals.
1: have amazon prime at the yeah. time so they <laughs> could not just
0: order your blood off the yeah amazon
1: they prime. couldn't ship blood probably yeah so that
0: yeah mm-hmm.
1: so one week so what what's the difference uh in storage time for something like plasma
0: so like a month and a half so maybe six times as long. So plasma, it makes up the majority of your blood. It's actually the liquid component of it. So it's this clearish, yellowish liquid that has the proteins and the electrolytes. So like the stuff that's in Gatorade. <laughs> yeah. And it is the liquid component that carries all of the blood cells throughout the mm. body. So if what you really need is fluid replacement, plasma can be used to treat the shock. The advantage of using plasma over whole blood is that it keeps longer without refrigeration. When it's like shaken up during transport, it won't deteriorate because it's really just the fluid component. It doesn't have all these cell mixtures that can get disturbed. It can be used with any blood type. So plasma can be used with anyone of any blood type. It's much less likely to transmit diseases and it can be injected through the veins, the muscles, the skin. Um, so it doesn't have, you don't have to put in like a central line or anything like that
1: uh, okay. in large
0: doses. So these are all good reasons that you would want to use only plasma, but they didn't have a a method at that time to separate the plasma from the rest of the blood.
1: Yeah, and, and that's what he essentially did in his thesis work, in his doctoral thesis was the first component was separating plasma from sites, ery- which is red blood cells, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And providing a solution for uh, long-term storage. So in 1940 is when he defended this uh, thesis and it was titled Bank Blood, A Study in Blood Preservation. And he became the first African American to earn a medical doctorate from Columbia University. Oh, wow,
0: we have another first medical yeah. doctorate. Also, awesome. yeah.
1: So, this guy is official in 1940 as a physician scientist. Nice. But unlike the traditional physician scientist mm-hmm. route, this guy has already established himself in his career. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, he's born in 1904. By 1940, he's 36. Mm -hmm. He completed, uh, of course, his undergraduate degree. He completed his medical degree, a master's in surgery. He completed his doctorate Mm -hmm. from Columbia University. He completed uh, two residencies in Canada. He was a chief resident in Howard, and he completed a surgical residency at New York Presbyterian Hospital. And so now this guy is 36 and already has an established scientific career and officially has his papers as oh, a physician scientist i'm
0: so impressed
1: <laughs> yeah this this guy is he could have been 34 if at the, if he hadn't mm-hmm. you know spent the time at morgan state
0: yeah
1: um teaching to save up money but mm-hmm. i'm sure without that you know you don't get the full the full story the full yeah. drew right yeah So moving forward in his career, his key findings at Columbia University, which identified these complex procedures and standards for collecting, processing, and storing blood, helped him get an appointment to head the Blood for Britain Project, or BFB, which was an effort to transport desperately needed blood and plasma to Great Britain, Um, which at the time was under attack by Germany. Again, at this time, there was no national blood bank. So Drew used his expertise uh, to innovate long-term storage solutions and to also reduce the contamination of plasma. So the process that Drew and his team developed at the Blood for Britain project was, again, they separated plasma from uh, red blood cells And then using centrifugation, which is a process where they spin the blood down to separate those different components that uh, Megan talked about earlier, where they separate the, I guess you would say, the particles from the liquid. So after separating the plasma from red blood cells using uh, centrifugation, Um, The plasma was then pulled from a collection of eight bottles using an anti-contamination technique under strict air and ultraviolet lighting conditions, Hmm. and then samples were cultured for bacteria, so to see if those samples uh, were contaminated, which was another very important innovation. Yeah. Um, Again, remember he worked under the visiting scholar, uh, Dr. Beto, when he was in Canada, who was a bacteriologist. So. Maybe that training had something to do with this effort that he had at the Blood for Britain project. He was very diligent in his effort into not only getting a long-term storage solution out, but also making sure that the soldiers that was receiving his blood wouldn't get any sort of bacterial infection or harm from contamination or anything like that. He was
0: really thinking of everything at this point. He's like, you're going to make me... Make a blood bank? I'm going to make it the best blood bank you've ever seen. Yeah. The best plasma I can possibly ship out.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, he really served his country from yeah um, the biomedical science um, perspective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it may seem like he had like this sort of long uh, journey, but it all really intertwined into a very important effort, which mm-hmm. they think might have helped more than 15,000 people. Um, wow. and within five months, and oh it said that they shipped 5,500 liters of plasma during his time. And so aside from his science, he also oversaw the logistics of it. Okay. So much like his earlier, uh, logistical and entrepreneurial efforts of uh, yeah. running this, uh, 2000 paper a day, yeah. <laughs> uh, newspaper route. He also designed blood mobiles, uh, which is basically buses that collected and stored blood from donors. And then created this centralized blood donating satellite sites.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah, so this guy was like pretty innovative too. Yeah. So he used like from those early experiences of organizing and yeah. logistics to his science from a pure science perspective mm-hmm. and his medical science perspective. And he put that together. And again, the result was uh, saving over 15,000 lives within um, half a year. This model actually became so robust that the American Red Cross adopted it and eventually named Drew the director of their very first blood bank in 1941. So ironically, though, the Red Cross excluded African-Americans from donating blood, um, making Drew himself ineligible to participate in the very program he established.
0: What? Yeah. Why?
1: I mean, they thought that blood from Blacks were sort of intrinsically, like, contaminated. And this guy was, like, of high integrity, and he told him, like, hey, this has no scientific basis. And so, I mean, that policy was later modified to accept donations from Blacks. However, um, the institution upheld racial segregation of blood. So they took blood from Blacks, but it was only able to be given to Blacks. Okay. So that was the modification of these rules that they had. And, again, Drew openly criticized them as unscientific and insulting to African-Americans.
0: Yeah. Yeah, like you said, the irony of that being the program that he established under his intellect and foresight, and yet they still consider the group of people that he's a part of to be so inferior that they can't even take their blood to save people who are dying.
1: So again, every time it's like peaks and valleys here is mm-hmm. every time this guy makes a contribution or he takes one step forward, you know, the underlying theme of race is sort of, Holds them back. I mean, specifically, he said, this was a bad mistake for three reasons. First, no official department of the federal government should willfully humiliate its citizens. Mm. Two, there is no scientific basis for this order. And three, they really needed the blood. Yeah. So with that, he left the Red Cross, actually, and after only a year after bringing his innovative techniques... Yeah. That he created as a student Mm -hmm. and resident, that was manifested during the Blood for Britain um, initiative. Yeah, and he brought that model over to American Red Cross. Okay, seeing the level of discrimination and left. But when he left, he still left the systems in place. Yeah. So the American Red Cross essentially, you know, they still had.
0: Yeah, it's His benefited model. from
1: that. Yeah, and they still use that a very similar model now.
0: Wow. Yeah. So I did some research on the Red Cross and it was actually founded by a woman. Did you know that?
1: Uh yeah, I did. Sarah uh, Barton. Yeah. In eighteen eighty
0: one. She had seen the Civil War firsthand and established this organization for future soldiers. Once we get into the nineteen forties, up until nineteen seventy three, donations to blood banks were paid. They weren't on a volunteer basis. Now that's illegal because it can be considered a form of coercion. Um, But at that time it was paid. But for at least a year, as you said, um, from when the blood bank began in 1941 until 1942, donations from African-Americans were not accepted at all. And the segregation that you talked about continued as late as the 1970s in some states that... A black person could only receive blood from a black person and a white person from a white person. I don't know about, like, Latino or Asian people. I don't know what category they fell under. But the Red Cross justified this segregation as democratic because they assumed the will of the majority called for segregated blood. So they were like, oh, it's a democracy because we think this is what the will of the majority thinks. What? Yeah, that's literally the opposite of yeah, democracy, you deciding what the will of the majority is. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess changing blood policy was a really major focus of civil rights organizations at this time, including the NAACP and the Congress of Racial Equality. Mm-hmm. Like, blood policy was this thing that people were very angry and upset about. First of all, that African Americans couldn't donate, and then second, after that, that the blood was segregated. And Black activists compared this policy to the Aryan-only policy of Nazi Germany. They called this barbarian Hitlerism. So they were like, you're over there fighting the Nazis in Germany, and yet at home, you're doing the same thing, separating people based on their race, based on what they look like.
1: Such hypocrisy.
0: Yeah, extremely. And so the most prominent way that people protested during this time was by not donating blood unfortunately because it was segregated blood and a black person could only receive blood that was donated by a black person like it hurt black people who would have needed blood because other others were protesting by not giving blood Mm. which is it makes sense as a protest but yeah it's so hard because then it did hurt that group as well there were some interesting poems that i found about this during the 1940s as well. So this is a poem I'm directly quoting from this poem in the African-American newspaper, The Cleveland Call and Post. The cross of red that burns so bright in fire, storm, and flood is now the crooked Nazi sign that spurns a Negro blood. So there were a lot of direct comparisons to Nazi policy at the time. And it's justified. It's totally justified. And another from a local high school student Had I wealth, I'd burn it all, not one cent for the Red Cross call. Our money is good, our blood is bad, but still that shouldn't make us mad. Are they afraid they'll all turn black? Is that why our blood they lack? Their skins are white as snow, it's well. Their souls are tarnished, black as hell. Mm. So I just thought it was striking, because I've never heard of this history of blood donation that It was segregated. But this was like a really important issue to um, Black activists of the time. Yeah, You
1: you know what's so um, ironic about what you're saying, too? It's a a little unrelated to this, but the hypocrisy between the U.S. at the time and Nazi Germany. Actually, so we know that there is this whistleblower recently um, at a Georgia facility for ICE Mm -hmm. that stated that there have been forced sterilizations and force uh, hysterectomies on women that have been detained, Mm -hmm. immigrant women that have been detained at ICE. Well, looking into the history of it and looking at the laws of forced sterilization programs in the United States that Mm -hmm. was adopted by 32 states, the major undertone was this idea of eugenics, which is the science that Hitler used in Nazi Mm -hmm. Germany Mm -hmm. to try to eliminate Jewish people. Mm -hmm. What's interesting and both disgusting is that Out of the 32 states, with Virginia being the first, but California being the most prominent in forcibly sterilizing individuals who were feeble minded, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. uh, people of color, or people that for whatever reason they thought should be eliminated from society, that was most prominently done in the state of California. And so the majority, I think at least one third of the 60,000 people between the early 1900s and Mm -hmm. 1970s came from a sort of handbook on eugenics that was adopted by people affiliated with institutions such as Stanford. And they actually gave that book to Nazi Germany (gasps) as a platform for their eugenics program and what they were doing in the U.S. So, yeah, they were the pioneers in the U.S., specifically in California, because they did it best, right? Um, They wrote the book on it and they gave that book away to Germany and said this is how you should design your eugenics program that you're gonna be rolling out.
0: I did not know that. Yeah. My mouth is hanging open.
1: Yeah. So
0: we're gonna cover eugenics in the future, probably very soon because
1: Yeah, eugenics and forced sterilization yeah. and um how that largely targeted people of color and indigenous people and how it's still how it still exists in society today.
0: Today. Like yeah. September twenty twenty. We're mm-hmm. still dealing with this.
1: Yeah. So that was my aside for
0: mm-hmm.
1: kind of what you're talking about now with the tone of these poems and yeah. how um black said in America felt at the time. Mm-hmm. So when I did research, I didn't I didn't find much of the research that, that you looked at okay. because I guess I wasn't looking in that direction, yeah. but I was just looking at like how the American Red Cross is conducted today. And okay. there was even um Good Morning America covered it recently and how Dr. Drew, you know, innovated many of these techniques that are being used now and how it relates to COVID 19 mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And so it's clear that the American Red Cross still uses protocols design. Uh, by Drew for the collection um, and transfusion of plasma. However, it's ironic that when I looked on a website in the Mm -hmm. About Us section and in the full history section, which is the extended version of the About Us, Dr. Drew's name is not mentioned even once. What? Right? Yeah. And they talk about his program. And they talk the same dates that I'm telling you here that we're talking about for when he established this program at American Red Cross, uh-huh. they used that timeline, but they don't even mention his name.
0: Wasn't he the first director? Isn't that- yeah,
1: he was the first director, mm-hmm. and this was his program Great. that he developed in Blood for Britain, and he brought over. Additionally, there are no photos of Drew or any other people of color in the historical piece that was written, just white children and uh, nurses. So... When you go to the About Us page, you see what we're talking about today mm-hmm. just without Drew's name on it. And then when you look at the full history, it's a more extended version of how they developed these programs and how it evolved over time. Okay. They again don't mention Drew's name. They have maybe four to five black and white pictures from yeah. the time, none of them of Drew, and none of them of not one person of color from what I've seen, even um, though it's black and white picture. Yeah. Could be a mistake on my part, but I look pretty closely oh, yeah. and it looked like all white children and uh, women.
0: Probably.
1: Actually, the only page that I can find on the entire website for American Red Cross that mentions Drew's name is where he's mentioned amongst several other people of color, acknowledging contributions of people of color, specifically, where they do mention Dr. Drew as starting the American Red Cross blood banking system in a very short one to two sentence snippet. What? Yeah. So they admit that he started it, which is obviously not a secret. They've never denied it. But he's only mentioned as a person of contributions of people of color.
0: So they're still segregated. Yeah. Literally, even the way they write their history is segregated.
1: Exactly. So... Not as the founder of this right. or the, the, the first. The of
0: modern. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, he doesn't he doesn't get that no. title. He,
1: well, he does kind of get the title of the father of blood banking. But according to the American Red Cross, he's just a, a footnote in African-American contributions mm-hmm. specifically, not saying that he built the whole damn system. You know, he designed the whole system. Yeah. This is his life's work at the time. Wow. Yeah, I sort of stumbled upon that serendipitously. Yeah, Um, I was just looking to see, like, if they were still using certain protocols and things like that. And then I just found it very peculiar that I couldn't find anything mentioned about him, about Charles Drew, except when talking about other African-Americans. And you get right. like a one- two-sentence snippet. I just no, wanted to say that. That isn't
0: just ironically poetic. I don't know what it
1: is. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Even in his death and legacy, <sighs> yep. it's his contributions are still r- reduced and mm-hmm. tarnished in a way in some kind of sick, discriminatory way, um, just overlooking his contributions. So when he left Red Cross in 1942, he returned to Howard University mm-hmm. uh, because, again... What's the theme here? Great contributions, yep. racial discrimination, go back to HBCU, yeah. specifically Howard, mm-hmm. right? So at Howard, he was the chief surgeon at Freedman's Hospital, and he worked there in this capacity until 1950. Mm-hmm. And while there, his core mission was to make the surgery program as rigorous as anywhere else in the country. Mm. Right. Remember, he trained in Canada. He trained at in Columbia, New York Presbyterian Hospital. So he wanted to make Howard like a premier surgical program and to prepare African American physicians for competitive uh, surgical positions.
0: That's
1: awesome. So, in addition, he used his platform as a popular surgeon to dispel myths and break racial barriers that prevented blacks from practicing medicine. um, That was coming up behind them so Mm -hmm. that they didn't have sort of the same. This, this zigzag approach to trying oh, to yeah. accomplish something that yeah. one is passionate mm-hmm. about. Yeah, I mean, that was his overall goal in that part of his career was to make Howard very competitive yeah. and to um, dispel myths that were holding Black physicians back. So and, to kind
0: of like streamline their path maybe yeah, medicine? Yeah,
1: just show that, hey, like... Yeah. You know these individuals are not inferior to yeah. their white counterparts, and they're just as good. And this Howard program, which is HBCU, is also just as good as a surgical yeah. program. So he sort of used his leverage um, there to do that. While there, he became the first African American examiner for the American Board of Surgery, and in 1946, he became a fellow of the International College of Surgeons. Again,
0: is this guy sleep. <sighs>
1: So you don't know how the story ends, do you?
0: No. Oh, no.
1: Does this guy sleep is ultimately the theme around his death. Oh, no. Yeah. So I guess it's no time like the president to talk about it. So to recap, this guy is a go-getter, to say the least, right? Um, He did multiple trainings at the same time, even Mm -hmm. from his formal education to his Um, scientific and residency training, and he worked very hard, and he worked in many different aspects, was a pioneer, innovator, and up until where I left off at, he would have been 42 at this time, 1946, right, where he won um, these prestigious awards working at Howard. But on March 31st, 1950, it said that Drew performed surgery, lectured a class, went home and had dinner with his family, returned back to the hospital to do rounds around midnight, all before heading on the road to attend a medical conference at Tuskegee University. Sadly, though, while driving through Greensburg, North Carolina, Drew fell asleep at the wheel and crashed into a tree. And his injuries were so bad that he soon died on that same day on April 1st, nineteen fifty at Alamance General Hospital in Burlington, North Carolina. Wow. So, yeah, the question of does he sleep, right? Like, he was, like, you know, almost like a polymath in some ways. Like, he just did a lot of things, like, very well, and he didn't sleep well, clearly. And his whole day, the evening before his death, was surgery, teaching, family, going back to do rounds at the hospital, to check on everything at the hospital Mm -hmm. because we know he's a meticulous guy, Mm -hmm. right? He thinks about every um, situation. Mm -hmm. And at midnight, left with a couple of his friends to go to Tuskegee Mm -hmm. for a conference hit the road, and fell asleep at the wheel. Um, actually, all three other people in the car survived except him. So he tragically died. And um, there were rumors that he was not offered a blood transfusion because he was Black. But there's no real evidence to actually support those rumors. I think that the reports that I've seen, they they did everything they could. But okay. it was just a bad situation yeah. uh, to begin with.
0: He's only so, like 45
1: 46. 46 years old, um, um, accomplished so much in his life, so much in his yes. career, things that we still use today.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, he died doing what he did best, you know, yeah. just working super hard. Jamal, um,
0: that reminds me way too much of you. <laughs> Guys, Jamal doesn't sleep because <laughs> he's so into everything and trying to change things and make things better work for his family, so Yeah maybe, maybe this will remind
1: you. I can definitely see some aspects of his life. I mean, if I can yeah. accomplish even even a slither of what he's done, yeah, I think I would be successful. But like yeah. his early inspiration from his biology professor yeah. to Dylan with navigating racial discrimination mm-hmm. and having to save up money for his education and things like that. I can definitely see some parallels and just him having his foot in so many different areas and that ultimately being what led to um, this sleep deprivation and yeah. this crash. I can definitely mm. see that. Yeah. I mean, right now, what, we're graduate students. Uh, we're running this podcast. We help co-found a organization at our institution to um, work for the betterment of graduate students within a medical school. Mm-hmm. I'm the president of a science policy uh nonprofit and I have a pretty big family yeah. that I take care of. Yeah. And so I can definitely see some uh, of those aspects, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. So PSA to Jamal and everyone, don't overwork yourselves. Find times to relax and sleep if you can. <laughs> yeah.
1: But it it's also a it it's a, I also take much pride in just having so many things to keep me busy and that I love to do. So that's why I don't usually take advice (laughs) like that. And even as a neuroscientist, knowing the Mm -hmm. impact of sleep on the aging process and longevity and overall cognition, weight gain and all those things, I I still abandon (sighs) that for the sake of just uh, seeking out things I want to do. But anyway, lastly, I'll say uh, what I'll say about Drew is, um, you know, we've discussed his great contributions. According to Wikipedia, uh, there are 10 medical and higher education institutions, programs named after Drew and 17 K through 12 schools uh, named after him, including one in Buffalo, New York.
0: So he has a little bit of recognition, but definitely not as much as he should. Just to end, we usually like to talk about something that's relevant to the present day as well, how this story ties in. And so one correlation that I was thinking about when I looked at this history of the Red Cross's discriminatory blood policies was how blood donation continues to be discriminatory today. Mm. Do you know what I'm referring to? No. No. So there's a group of people who cannot donate blood, and that is men who have sex with men. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Today. Today, in 2020. So I'll tell you a little bit about the history. Beginning in 1985, after the AIDS crisis um, came to the forefront, and people started to realize that it was mainly, at that time, it was mainly men who had sex with men who were coming down with HIV infection first. So they thought it was, like, the gay man's disease. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what it used to be thought of. Yeah. So in 1985, the Red Cross instituted this lifetime ban on men who had ever had sex with another man, regardless of how they identified their own sexuality. Throughout their entire lifetime, they could never donate blood. And that... lasted until 2015. What? Yeah, until 2015. Even though we know, we had known for a very long time that anyone can get HIV. It's not just men who have sex with men or MSM. It's not just MSM. Anyone can have HIV. And the they do testing of every blood sample for HIV. So it's kind of weird that they would have this lifetime ban. Then in 2015, looking at the most recent research, they decided, okay, we'll do a 12-month ban. So definitely very much cut down, but if a man had any um, sexual contact with another man in the past 12 months, he could not donate blood. So, I mean, an entire year. Like, one of the articles I read was this man who's married, who's been married to his husband for 20 years, and he's like, I could never donate blood unless I chose to be celibate for a year. He's in a committed monogamous mm-hmm. relationship, And even then, he's excluded from donating blood. And then it was just in April 2020, in response to shortages caused by coronavirus, that they cut that down to three months. If you had any contact in the past three months with another man, you couldn't donate. But still, it doesn't make any sense because even though this group is, in general, is at a higher risk for HIV transmission, that doesn't look at the individual person's behavior. Like. Mm -hmm. Someone who has a lot of partners is inherently at higher risk than someone who has fewer, regardless of the gender of the person that they are with. Yeah. And that is not like a question that's asked. And also, transgender people who were assigned male at birth and now identify as women can donate if they've had sex with men, while people who were assigned female at birth and now identify as a man cannot. So it all just seems, like, very arbitrary. Yeah. And, like...
1: Yeah, like, where is the the data to prove this? Where is the science right. to prove this?
0: Right. And and the testing that they do for HIV presence in the blood samples is really effective, and there's, like, a really low risk of it being transmitted. So it's just kind of disheartening that even today we have these discriminatory policies. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm.
1: That was a shock. I didn't know that was on the agenda to talk yeah. about. I yeah. do not know. You, mm-hmm. had, you were sitting on this information.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. It's these things that all these shocking I
1: just thought there. like American Red Cross just, you know, just a stand-up I know. organization. And even after reading a thing about Drew, it made mm-hmm. me kind of think twice a little bit, but I had no idea about the stuff you talked about today. And I'm sure a lot of listeners had no idea about what you talked about today. Well, before we go, do you want to tell the listeners what we're going to be talking about next week Yeah. or next episode?
0: Yeah, I would love to. So we will be talking about someone who I have really admired and respected ever since I read about her, I think in a book about neuroscience, like a popular book about neuroscience. Her name is Rita Levi Montalcini. She was an Italian Jewish woman during World War II and ended up making some amazing discoveries that led to her winning a Nobel Prize later in her life. And she was just an incredible person throughout her 103 years. So I'm going to tell you all about her next time.
1: Yeah, I know you really respect her, and I can't Mm -hmm. wait to hear it. Yeah. And also, uh, be sure to subscribe to Reclaim the Bench at uh, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, And all other places that you listen to podcasts, we are now everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also listen directly through our website, which is connected to our hosting site, Red Circle. While you're at our website, reclaimthebench.com, you can leave a suggestion about episodes you'd like to hear about. Or just general comments about how you felt about episodes that we've covered so far, including this one. If you still want to support our podcast, you can donate directly through our website, and if you want a bigger bang for your buck, you can become a patron at Patreon. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're, we're rolling out a multi-tier platform that's going to include things like extended content and interviews and a chance to talk with us and hopefully some professional development series where where we'll give you our expertise on applying to graduate and professional programs, including a PhD and in medical school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, please support our podcast.
0: <laughs> also, for free, you can rate and review our podcast, which is also super helpful if you want to support us but don't have the money to donate. And finally, I would like to thank the other members of our team behind the scenes, Jay and Amvati, who you can find out more about on our website, reclaimthebench.com. We couldn't have done this without them and their awesome team members as well. On that note, hope you're all having a lovely fall. I'm really enjoying that the weather has finally cooled down and it's not 90 degrees every day anymore. I love the fall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got a pumpkin outside. We can have some apple cider. So, <laughs> thanks for reclaiming the bench with us. i